the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. We all have heroes, people we look up to, people we seek to emulate, wish we could be, people we are inspired by. So I wonder who your heroes are, what it is that inspires you about them, what it is that you seek to emulate or copy. One of the things about our heroes is that we often put them on pedestals. We fail to see the real person and instead create this persona that's not real. And so when we're in their company, that can be a little intimidating, especially when we get up close. And it can also mean that, well, when we find out they, they are human and they don't quite measure up the, to the persona or the image we've created, we can be really disappointed and disillusioned in them. Sometimes finding out that they don't quite measure up can also be really liberating and life-giving. And this applies also to people who might not be our heroes, but just people who we admire. I remember when I was asked by one such person to be their spiritual director, and I was intimidated. I thought she was a pretty amazing person, I admired her a lot, and I was a little freaked out. And I'd have to say the first few sessions did not go that well, because, well, I was a little freaked out, and I was not relaxed. But then... And then I found out that actually she was human, after all. And she had a few fears and a few foibles, foibles, a few failings. I discovered her feet of clay. And once I discovered that she had feet of clay, I was able to relax and actually enjoy the session, enjoy getting to know her. And I think I was a lot more helpful as a result because I was able to just be present and I was no longer intimidated. I still think she's a pretty amazing person, and there's a lot about her that I admire, but I'm a bit more realistic about her. She's a real person, and she does some amazing things. And if she can do amazing things despite her failings, then maybe, maybe I can do a few things myself. That's just as true for the people we meet in the Christian story the saints, and the people we meet in the scriptures. It's often easy to not see them as real people. But instead, we put them on this pedestal and we create this unrealistic and intimidating persona. They're out of reach. We could never be like them. A few weeks ago, we remembered the great Irish saint, Columba who founded monasteries across Ireland and the great monastery of Iona, where, in fact, that um, little film clip we saw was shot. It's a wee small island that is as far away from the Scottish mainland as you can possibly get and still be in Scotland, and as close to Ireland as you can possibly get and still be in Scotland. And Columba, amongst the things that he did, helped people see that this place was a holy place, a wahitapu, a thin place. So that centuries later, when 
the Viking Danes became Christians, they brought their dead kings to this place, this place that they had raided years earlier, to bury their kings in this holy place. And today it acts as the home for the Iona community, an ecumenical religious order that offers hospitality on the island, at the rebuilt abbey and at the George MacLeod Centre, hospitality offered to people of all ages, and in offering that hospitality and in the services they run and the programs they run and telling the story of Columba and those early monks, they continue to offer a much bigger understanding of what Christianity can be about than we offer encounter in our home churches. And because of all that has happened since Columba and all that happened during his lifetime, it's easy to fail to see that this man had feet of clay. We just see the great saint that he was. We fail to see, for example, that he was always a loyal member of the Irish royal family and that one of his jobs in Scotland was to ensure, through threats of curses and promises of blessings, and trust me, his threats of curses and promises of blessings carried weight because of who he was. He made sure that any Scottish king who was of Irish descent remained loyal to the High King of Ireland so that the Irish king had authority in Scotland as well. And he was filled with avarice, probably partly because of his upbringing as a noble. And he was filled with avarice notably for his teacher's book of Psalms, which he copied secretly. And when he was ordered to return it, well, he showed himself to be still a fiery Celt and killed a number of his teacher's kinsmen so that he could reclaim the book of Psalms that he had copied and for his reward was banished from Ireland for the rest of his life, or so the story goes, and ordered to save as many souls as were lost in the battle. And yet, despite all those failings, God still used his endeavours to change the course of Scottish history and Irish history down to today. If God can use him, well, maybe God can use us too. Another thing about heroes is that we have preconceived ideas of what a hero should look like. And we miss seeing people who might be heroes because they don't quite fit the mould. It's a problem for teachers, particularly secondary school teachers, not so much heroes, but you know, we kind of think in our heads of somebody who is... Um, physically mature is also going to be emotionally mature and therefore is going to be a great leader. And, well, often they weren't very emotionally mature and actually made terrible leaders. And we overlook some of the less physically mature people in our classes who actually were the real leaders. But we have preconceived ideas of who should be the leader. And so David, for example, well, he didn't fit anyone's idea of what a king should look like. A king... Well, he should be the eldest son of the noblest family. But he was the youngest son of a good family, but not the noblest family. And a king should be a bold and brave warrior who has shown leadership and skill on the battlefield. Uh, but he was a shepherd who fought with a sling and a rod. A king should be impressive, manly, 
get that feeling in the way they describe David, who was kind of ruddy. It seems to me that David didn't kind of fit any of the criteria. And yet, he was God's choice. And he made a few pretty seismic mistakes during his reign. But despite that, he is remembered as the greatest of all the kings. Even though he didn't measure up and he had feet of clay. Paul too didn't impress anyone. He didn't fit what a great evangelist should look like. Apparently he wasn't the best looking chap around. And he himself says that he wasn't a great speaker despite Luke's efforts to describe him as such. And he seemed to be constantly in trouble, which for lots of people meant, how can you be God's servant and constantly in trouble? That just doesn't seem to fit. And he was clearly not the most politic of people. If you read his letters, then he clearly didn't obey the rule, which is, you don't send a letter when you're angry. And he didn't even have the excuse of email. All we have to do is push send, and away it goes. And then we think, oh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I should have redrafted that. He just seems to have sent the letter anyway. And you think, Paul, I'm sure if you'd taken a little bit of time to think about this, you might have phrased that just a little bit differently. But no, he sent them anyway. There were way more impressive teachers around at the time of Paul. But we don't know their names. And we don't have any of their works. We have Paul's. So what is it that inspires us about people? What do we look for in people to inspire us? What is it that we want to emulate? What do we look for in our heroes? The disciples aren't much different either. In this morning's Gospel, they're not portrayed in a very flattering light. The story is a continuing of Jesus' teaching about the Kingdom of God. So last week we had a couple of parables mustard seed and a farmer who planted and then went away and the crop came. And this week is kind of an acted out parable, placed deliberately at this point. We have to remember that these Gospels are not history books, they are theology books. And so the authors are free to play with the story to meet their ends. And so on this morning's story, Jesus sets sail and collapses in the back, fast asleep. In the back, or the stern, where the boat was steered from. And there he sleeps. And, well, the disciples are all good with that, because it's a nice day, as we saw. All is well. And it's all good until, well, it turned, until the weather turns septic. And they're encased in this astoundingly savage storm, which shreds the sails and their confidence in their sailing skills and their faith and trust in Jesus. And in the end, they're forced to wake him up and to cry, Don't you care that we are drowning? One of the commentators suggests that Jesus was asleep not only because he was exhausted from all he'd been doing, the healing and the teaching and being surrounded by such big crowds all the time, but also, unlike the disciples, because no matter what happened, he completely trusted in God's goodness and generosity. That's not to say that he trusted that everything would be a box of roses. He knew that it wasn't going to be a box of roses. 
and we know where the story is headed. His is a deeper faith and trust. But the disciples' faith is a fair-weather faith. When things are going well, then you know that God cares. But when they go wrong, they're not so sure. And so they ask that question that is there when we are immersed in our own storms, when all hell breaks loose, literally, when hope seems distant and a faint light. Don't you care if we are drowning? And Jesus' response is swift and dumbfounding. Peace, be still. Now it's pretty easy to get hung up on the details at this point, to wonder how did Jesus do that? Did he really do that? Is that possible? But when we do that, we miss the point. The point is that this is not just a storm, and Jesus isn't just someone who can boss nature around. The storm is demonic. The Greek is clear about that. And it comes out of all the powers that seek to destroy and distort and endanger. It represents all that seeks to destroy and distort and endanger. All that works against the kingdom of God. Jesus has just finished teaching through parables about the kingdom of God, which the disciples needed tuition on because they didn't get it. And now immersed and they are now immersed in the middle of an event that is, in a way, another parable about the kingdom of God. And just like in the parables, the disciples get stuck. They get stuck on waves and wind. And they miss Jesus defeating those powers. And in the process, liberating people from all that destroys and distorts and endangers. And in the process, announces the kingdom of God. The disciples miss that because they are lost in fear. Fear of the storm and fear of Jesus who defeated the storm. And they ask the question that is central to this and every gospel. Who then is this man? That's the question the gospels seek to answer. They miss, and we too often miss, that Jesus is the one who is liberating people and society from all the powers that destroy, distort, and endanger. So disciples are not some great heroes beyond anything that we might be or aspire to be. Turns out the disciples are pretty much like us. People filled with fear. Who miss the point again and again and again. Who want all the wrong things. But at least ask honest questions and respond with honest responses. Another thing about heroes is that they change. Today is the 101st anniversary of the Battle of Tarana, a short battle where between 80 and 150 Māori warriors were killed and about eight British soldiers. A battle that marked the kind of this phase of the New Zealand land wars, although the wars would carry on with the Bush campaign. And for a long time, the heroes of that story would have been people like General Cameron and Colonel Greer. They were the ones that saved us all 
from these treacherous Māori. The Māori were the villains. But times have changed. So I wonder who we see as the heroes of that story today. For me, it is people like Henare Wiramu Taratoa, a Māori steeped in the Gospel, who was a disciple of Jesus in his day, who sought to stand up against all that distorted and destroyed and endangered, and in the midst of the carnage of war, sought to bring humanity through the rules of engagement to ensure that people fought as little as possible. We are the disciples of today, and we are part of a larger story of God's work in this world. A story that includes people like David and Paul, Columba, the disciples, and Taratoa. And we're kind of the heroes of today, really. The heroes of the story. Just as flawed, not quite fitting the mould that people look to, and yet we are the heroes. So in what way are we the heroes? In what way do we inspire? In what way do we join with the work of the kingdom, standing against all that endangers and destroys and distorts. And who is it that inspires us in our task of being today's heroes? Who do we look to? The surprising people. The people that no one else looks to. Who really are our heroes?